Welcome to X Chateau. X Chateau. The podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights. With your host, Robert Vernick and Peter Young. Welcome to this episode of X Chateau. Today we're continuing our series on the future of wine retail. Our guest is Addy Wallace, Director of Brand Marketing for Wine.com. Addy, welcome to the show. Thanks, guys. Great to be here. So I was wondering if you could start off the show by giving us a brief overview of your background and your experience in wine. Yeah. Surprisingly, I actually started my career in finance, not in wine, but got into wine when I was at business school where I led our school's Wine and Cuisine Society. So yes, that's actually a thing. And in addition to doing that, I also created a wine recommendation app with some classmates. Despite dabbling in that a little bit while I was at school, after graduating, I actually went back to finance, but I did keep thinking about wine. And during that time, I got my WSET level three and also spent a lot of time looking at business models in this space, which eventually led me to wine.com because I pitched them the idea of building a personalized wine club. Eventually, that's what I ended up doing. I joined them shortly thereafter and helped them build out that service. But today, I oversee all of our brand, our customer insight, as well as continuing to develop that subscription business, as well as a different one called Stewardship, which is for all of our customers. Awesome. We'll definitely get into a lot more detail for all those topics because those are really interesting and I think very pertinent to the future of retail. And most people, I think, have heard of Wine.com as one of the original e-commerce sites for wine. It's one of the first places I ever bought wine, I think, way back when in the dark ages of the internet in college. But do you think you could give us a brief history of the company and some of its major milestones? You're right insofar as Wine.com is one of the original e-commerce sites. But interestingly, what is now known as Wine.com actually started as a company called eVineyard in 1998. And we acquired the URL for wine.com in that name in 2001 when the original wine.com went belly up during the dot-com bubble. So little interesting thing there. A lot of people are like, oh yeah, I'm familiar with that, but didn't that implode? Yes, but we're the phoenix that rose from the ashes. And in terms of a couple of milestones, so over the last 23 years, wine.com has really developed the largest assortment of wine in the world, which is pretty awesome. So if you're on the West Coast right now, and if you were to go to our website, you would be able to shop over 17,000 wines. That's pretty incredible when you think about other specialty retailers, which typically have maybe two to 3,000 SKUs in a store. Another milestone was our adding our live chat functionality. So when you go to a brick and mortar store, there are often people there who you can ask questions of. Well, We also have people in our digital aisles. They are real wine experts waiting to answer your questions on chat. Is that a new functionality? People waiting to answer your calls? Or is that something that has always been there from an early stage? Because it seems like a fairly modern take on e-commerce. Yeah, it's been there for a little while. I want to say at least six, seven years. But I don't have the actual date off the top of my head. But it has been there for a little while. It's still pretty early in the functionality of that type of function. Yeah, exactly. We were definitely one of the first people to do that. And I think most companies have gone the way of, okay, well, let's just man this with a customer service agent or a bot. And we certainly also have live chat for customer service as well. But having a real SOM that you can have a conversation with over chat is pretty cool. And another key milestone is actually just building out our physical presence in order to ship 
to the majority of the United States. So we serve 42 states plus Washington, D.C. And I think pretty impressively, we can reach about 80% of our customers in two days and a lot of them in one day. If you're in the Bay Area, for example, if you made an order right now, it would show up tomorrow afternoon, which is pretty cool. And finally, right now we're working on personalization. That is making the world's largest wine store a little bit less intimidating. And so hope for that to be a new milestone coming down the pipe. So I wanted to touch on that important thing that being able to ship to so many states, because that is clearly an area where only a few companies are doing it, I guess, the proper way, where they're having actual retail licenses and different things. It's something that we talked about with Tom Work in terms of how with some of the issues we hit with interstate shipping. Now, there are other companies who take a different lens and kind of use it in this gray area where they sell the wine locally to someone, even though they're not there, and then say they own the product and are shipping to them. What is that distinction in terms of why wine.com has gone this route versus the latter route? Well, I think it's just important to be able to legally operate being the largest wine retailer. It is really complicated. And there's a lot of convoluted old legacy laws that are in place. But we want to be a good partner to our distributors. We want to be a good partner to our customers. And I think the best way to do that is through a legally viable lens. That way we can continue to operate and provide the service to customers around the country. I know that's the reason why when you go to the site, you kind of ask which state am I in? Because it helps kind of lock in what is the actual inventory that is available to me. Exactly. Wine commerce has been growing really quickly over the last decade and has really accelerated over the last two years during COVID. Wine.com revenues have more than doubled to $355 million in the fiscal year 2021. Do you and Wine.com have a perspective on if e-commerce will continue to outpace overall wine growth for the next few years? Yeah. The conversion to e-commerce was already growing pre-COVID, but COVID absolutely did accelerate that quite a bit. My personal view, and I think that this is shared amongst others at the company, is that that growth will continue going forward, though definitely not at the pace that we saw in April 2020. I don't know that that can ever be replicated. It's pretty crazy. It's overnight to the moon. But for better or for worse, the pandemic has shifted a lot of people's behavior from where they work, how they shop, how they socially interact. And I think a lot of those new behaviors are stuck or are sticky. We've heard from a lot of our customers that they found shopping online to be a much easier, more delightful, better experience, mostly because you can access a much larger assortment of wines. You can have it shipped to you. You don't have to lug it around in your car. It arrives pretty much just as fast as it is going to the store. Actually, I was reading through customer comments this morning and one comment jumped out to me that actually addresses this question pretty perfectly. So I'm just going to read our customer's words. She said, I began using wine.com at the beginning of the pandemic and found it to be so convenient and inexpensive that I never stopped. The selection is fantastic and the help from the wine experts is really very helpful. Even though I've been sticking with my favorite variety, which is sparkling, I've tried so many different vineyards and types of sparkling wine that I never would have reached for in my local wine shop. And I've come upon some wonderful surprises. This is the epitome of why we exist and how we delight our customers. We have this great variety, this great convenience, this really endless discovery potential. So, I mean, obviously people have been forced to buy a lot more online. You know, a lot of people are at home. So shipping to things at people's houses has become a lot easier. But also there's been some relaxation on some of the more rigid shipping rules as it comes to, you know, being able to do digital signatures or not having signatures in some cases or sign for it in advance understanding how that impacted. If we start to see some of those things pull back, do we think that there's going to be an impact on the business 
rewind.com? Yeah, you know what's interesting is that all of these little things, I think, have actually only helped us in terms of educating more customers that they can shop online. So prior to the pandemic, there was actually just a lot of people who, even in a state like California, would say like, well, you can't ship wine. That's illegal. But there's no basis for that comment. But the fact that all of these tiny little things changed, and there was press around it, people were like, oh, okay, I didn't realize I could do that. That's a long way of saying that, no, I don't think that we're going to see a pullback, even if some of these things change back, just because net-net, there are more people who are suddenly aware that this is a possibility. So the overall takeaway from COVID is that all these little things helped open more doors, but you've essentially changed over the last year and a half, two years, a buying behavior and exposure for what people are able to do. You know, Maybe you won't grow as fast, but you don't see it regressing. You see that once you've got the customer and they've seen the convenience and the vast selection that you have, that the actual site and the business is sticky. Exactly. There were some studies... I think in like 2016, that showed that e-commerce only represented 3% of all alcohol shopping. That's just a tiny percentage. If you think about all the shopping that you do on Amazon or apparel, furniture, like all of these other categories have just sort of skyrocketed. They're, you know, 15, 20% of overall commerce. I think today after the pandemic, that 3% is probably double, maybe triple, but still something less than 10% is tiny compared to all these other categories. So I think there's a lot of room for that to grow. And until it becomes more fully penetrated, only then could we potentially see growth come down. So you mentioned variety, the convenience of shopping online. Are there other unique things of wine.com that makes it special as a place to buy wine online? The three things that really make us special are that selection. Our wine customer is somebody who really loves discovery. So we offer the largest wine selection in the world, which means that we carry just about every region and variety at both like the big names and the small names. To state the obvious, that means that as a customer, you can continuously discover and try new wines with us and literally never run out of interesting new things to find. That's the first most important piece. The second is actually that live chat functionality, that expert guidance. Those folks are actually not commissioned either. So they are just available to answer your questions. Their only task is just to help you find and figure out which wine you're actually going to enjoy and what's going to meet your needs. Third is that convenience piece, which I would just add is our stewardship membership. So stewardship allows our customers to order an endless number of bottles of wine in a year and all delivered for free. So no extra shipping charge for those folks. That adds to that convenience factor such that you don't have to factor that into the price of your wine. And then last is personalization. So today that's largely delivered through Picked, our personalized wine club. But we're working on bringing some of that curation to life for the rest of our site as well right now. Can people maintain a connection? Say I use the Psalm on the end of the chatbot. Can I maintain a relationship and keep having that person pick for me in the personalization? Because that seems like super powerful if you can do that. Yeah, good question. So in Picked, yes, you have one Psalm assigned just to you. And every time that Psalm will be picking your wines and writing you a note, we're actually in the midst of developing a similar functionality for stewardship members where they can have a personal wine concierge. Something that we're thinking about on that, though, is whether or not the customer will want to have the same Psalm. So for instance, if you are interested in Italian wine today, you might want to go talk to this person who's really an Italian expert. 
well, let's say next week you want to try a Rhone wine, you might actually want to go talk to somebody else who is more expert in that. So I think just helping people figure out who's the right person that they should be talking to will be the next level that we're excited to expose. As the head of brand marketing, you must get into the weeds of what works and what doesn't work for wine.com. What are the main marketing channels you use to acquire new customers and which is the most effective and why? So we do a lot of digital advertising across really all (laughs) digital channels from social media to affiliates, search, Google shopping, you name it, we dabble a bit. And you know what's interesting is I would say is that each channel is effective at meeting a different customer need. So for example, Google shopping works really well because consumers go to Google when they're looking for a very specific product. And chances are, because we have the largest assortment of wine, we're going to show up at the top of that list. That's great for capturing somebody who's on the hunt for something really specific. Whereas somebody who's listening to a podcast about wine, perhaps giving them a message that's more around like, hey, you can buy wine online and you can shop at wine.com. That's effective at getting brand awareness out there. So it's a long way of saying that they're all effective for different things. You just need to know what the goal is for that channel and to be focused on that. It's a golden opportunity for us to get a sponsor here in this podcast. That's what this is really about. (laughs) (laughs) I am curious, what is the, in terms of largest channel, in terms of number of eyeballs or people that actually use it versus the one that actually drives the highest ROI for you? I'm assuming those are two different locations, but I could be wrong. Yeah, I would say things like search and Google shopping probably have the largest number of eyeballs, which again, to my point of we have a large selection, there's a lot of people looking for specific wines, there's great overlap there. I'd say a channel that you might be surprised about the ROI, if you will, or just level of success is direct mail, which is our one non-digital channel. And I'm not as close to what the magic is there, but I do know that that's been highly effective. We have heard from some wineries that actually cold calling their old list and actually human talking to another human has been extremely effective, especially during the pandemic because people are home and are answering their phones. Yeah, I wonder if part of it is just that people are inundated with these digital messages, hitting them in a way that is a little bit less expected (laughs) can be a welcome change perhaps. It's one of the most effective I've heard for credit card conversions as well. So that's why you always get the credit card offers in the mail because it's one of the more effective ones. Yeah, that's true. I like never see credit card offers online now that I think about that, but I do get them in the mail every day. How effective in terms of strategy, in terms of using coupons or discounting versus promoting a region or some other kind of promotional activity? Because the first two seem to be really focused on price. The latter seems to be focused on some kind of other ethereal aspect that's going to give it either some timing and the seasonality or around something that's happening in the world to kind of like rosé happening in the summer versus discounting of things. Part of it is just the marketing funnel, if you will. So there are some messages that are appropriate at the top of the funnel where it's just getting people to know your brand. Who are you? The fact that you exist. What do you do? What are your value props? Moving down the funnel is getting them a little bit more familiar with how you're differentiated. And then at the bottom of the funnel is that promo that's going to get them to convert. So we absolutely use promotions, use a lot of promo codes because they're effective. And I think the key to promotions really is just making sure that you're structuring them such that you're attracting the right audience. Getting anybody to use a promo code is one thing. 
getting somebody who's going to come back and continue shopping with you over and over again is another. An example could be your promo is structured around incentivizing a large purchase. Well, chances are the customer that uses that is then going to be thinking about you as a place where they can buy a whole bunch of different kinds of wines and less likely to think of you as like, oh, this is a one-off, one-bottle place to buy wine. So I think just being thoughtful about making it win-win for both you and the customer is really important. I'm curious on what hasn't worked. I mean, I know in talking with some other people at wine.com, it seems like you guys have dabbled in a lot of areas like social media, but haven't really made a major push there. And I'm curious if that's because of the traditional dot-com e-commerce is really based on sales, not marketing per se. It's based on conversion and stuff like that. And it's maybe harder to connect those dots on some of the social media stuff in terms of the follow-through on the sale conversion. What are your thoughts on social media for wine.com? Well, I think that social media has just been challenging with some of the regulatory things, the things that they're experiencing. So they've made a whole bunch of privacy changes. They're constantly changing their algorithm. And not to mention that there's a thousand different competitors who are also advertising on social media platforms, which makes it more expensive. So all of those things make it a sort of ever-evolving black box and make it difficult to always be winning at. So as soon as you figure something out, something's going to change and then you're going to have to sort of rethink it all over again. Part of it is that it's constantly evolving and we have to constantly evolve with it, which just makes it hard for it to ever be our sort of like number one channel. Are there other examples of things over the last couple of years that just really have been clunkers and haven't worked out outside of social media? Well, I wouldn't say social media is a clunker by any means. Like we absolutely still advertise on social media and we have campaigns that work I'd say just versus something like direct mail, it's more complicated. But things that have not worked, it's hard to say that things don't necessarily work, but rather that there are a lot of marketing channels where it's hard to measure the results. And that can be complicated from an ROI measurement perspective. So if you're advertising in print media, QR codes are a thing now. So that's helpful. But historically, maybe you could put a promo code in there and see how many people use that promo. But just understanding like the lift of brand awareness or number of people visiting your site coming out of that, it's just hard to tell. Whereas something where you can just like click and we know like, yes, an eyeball came and visited because of this ad. It's much easier to sort of justify more dollars going there. Again, I think it comes down to a lot of it as people use marketing as this overarching umbrella of things, but you know, ads and promotion codes and coupons, those are sales tools, conversion tools, and not really kind of brand awareness. And so just delineating those two things. And it's really hard when you're going to get something that like has a proven track record versus something that you're like, I can't really tell you what this did for me, especially if you're a sales driven organization. Right, exactly. And I think that, that that sort of comes back to my point around each channel has its purpose. And I think as long as you are setting the right metrics for that channel, for that purpose, you will always be successful. You are more likely to be successful. Not every channel is going to yield a direct conversion immediately. Kind of looking forward a couple of years, do you think there are going to be new channels emerging? Is there anything you kind of have your eye on that you're hopeful for that you want to share? Yeah. Actually, interestingly, we've been spending more time in podcasts, for example. So it seems like that's been promising. I'm interested to see how that really pans out. In terms of really brand new channels, there are some new social channels that have emerged. They're not so new insofar as users have been using them for a while, like Snap or TikTok. But alcohol advertising is not permissible yet 
on some of these things. So I think what we're watching is just how does that evolve? How does the regulatory environment around advertising alcohol change? And what sort of new opportunities will come out of those? I do think there's more things in the social sphere, but sadly, alcohol can never be on the cutting edge there. Well, speaking of being on podcasts, Tim Marson, Master of Wine, the lead buyer for Wine.com, was one of our original guests on the show. Fortunately, he accepted when we had no track record at the time, but episode four. And he told us about one of Wine.com's core innovations, the stewardship program that you manage and how it subsidized shipping. Robert calls it like the Amazon Prime of Wine.com, but how it really improves customer performance and retention. Could you give us details on how that program works and how it benefits Wine.com and its members? Yeah, absolutely. Stewardship was started a number of years ago as a free shipping program. So for an annual fee, you get free shipping on all of your orders for that year. As you might expect, when you don't have to pay for shipping, as a customer, you tend to shop more frequently, which is a delightful, virtuous cycle for us as a business. And that's created a great deal of loyalty amongst a great deal of customers. More recently, though, we've begun to build that program into a more comprehensive membership program, much like Amazon did with Prime, right? So that started off as free shipping. Now it's videos and books and music and photos. And I don't think we're going to become a photo storage (laughs) site. (laughs) Whole Foods discount. That's a big one. (laughs) Yeah, true. But what we are doing is adding more perks that help feed your wine lifestyle, help you move and progress down your wine journey. So things that, for example, are free tickets to events, both in person and virtual. Right before the pandemic, we had created a partnership with James Suckling, who puts on these really great, huge tasting events around the country. We were giving 100 free tickets away to our stewardship customers in each of those cities. Or during the pandemic, we did a really cool virtual tasting with the Gaia family. And we gave 50 stewardship customers the opportunity to stay on after that tasting to chat with the family one-on-one, like actually have some real meaningful interaction. So it's things like that that we're infusing into this program to help thank these customers for being so loyal and also help inspire them further in that wine exploration that they're enjoying. Are there some, given those uh, other benefits, community elements like interactions between the stewardship community that you help foster? That's a good question. That is on our short list of things that we'd love to start figuring out. So things that we're currently doing include those events. We have special promotions, exclusive deals just for stewardship members. And then we also have exclusive and early access to specific products just for stewardship members. But things that we're thinking about adding are that personal wine concierge concept, a loyalty program, and sort of amplified versions of things that you might have already on our site. So what percent of Wine.com customers are even on stewardship? Stewardship customers represent about 60% of our revenue. They are a meaningful chunk of our business and we love them. Do stewardship members stay on year to year? Is there a good retention? Yes. Once somebody realizes that they never need to pay for shipping again, they are hooked and they definitely come back year after year. Just to remind everyone, how much does stewardship cost right now? Yeah, so stewardship costs $59 a year. 
And if you're going to order two cases over the course of a year, like that more than pays for it. So it is honestly a no-brainer if you're going to make a couple of orders. The shipping price, it changes a lot as you buy a case versus a couple bottles. What is the average cost of shipping for a bottle of wine if you don't have stewardship? Just a reminder for folks, shipping wine is expensive. You are taking a fragile, heavy glass bottle and putting it in the mail. I think a lot of people are like, oh, well, Amazon, everything is shipped for free. It's like, okay, well, that weighs half a pound. And if it gets thrown eight different ways, it doesn't matter. Very different with wine. As a result, it is very expensive. So it costs about $40 to ship a case and it costs about $30 to ship six bottles. Wine.com has added new features to its wine clubs with Picked, a personalized wine club service where Wine.com summons personally select wines for members. Can you please give us an overview of this new service and how has it been going? Very excited about Picked. We just launched this last year. And Picked is a personalized wine subscription where you tell us about your wine preferences. So the varieties that you like, your desired price point, your mix of reds and white, how adventurous you are. And then we match you with your own personal son, who then selects six wines for you every one, two, or three months at the cadence that you choose. And every single time you get different wines and no two customers get the same things. It's truly personal and individualized just for your unique tastes, which I think is pretty awesome. There's nothing else that exists out there like that. How much of that is truly that human versus data that you could mine that could be very effective in terms of if some people have purchased these things and led to those other suggestions? So we're obviously a tech company being e-commerce, but we also know that wine is very nuanced and human judgment is extremely important. So we're trying to create the perfect marriage there where, for example, if you tell us you only want red wines at about a $30 price point, well, let's make the effort for the Somme much easier. Let's not show the Somme any white wines or $80 bottles. There are simple things that technology can do to make the Somme selecting process easier. Essentially, what we do is we do have an algorithm that will suggest generically some products. And then the Somme will go through and say, okay, yes, I'm going to keep this one. No, I don't want to keep that. Hey, I've actually tried this one and it's not representative of that region and variety. So I'm going to take this other one or they exert a lot of judgment. The Psalm then actually writes a personal note to you as a customer, explaining to you what you're getting, giving you some context for what to expect, what to look forward to, and why they chose those products. At the end of the day, it's a mix of technology and human judgment. But I think that that helps ensure that we're giving every customer a good diversity of products while also making sure that we're really tuned into their tastes. One important call out is that if we didn't use any technology, I think the flip side is that you'd probably have a whole bunch of customers getting really similar wines every time, right? Because even if you're a wine expert and have tried a lot of different things, chances are you're not going to select more than 100, 200 different products. We use technology to help make sure that they're constantly thinking outside of the box to find new things. It's pretty cool. Just out of curiosity, how many people can a Psalm support using this technology? That's a good question. We haven't pushed the limit on it yet. It's a lot, mostly because if you think about it, a Psalm can work every single day of the week and a customer is not getting new wines until like every other month or every three months. 
that cadence changes. So they're not revisiting the same customer every single day. But I think it's in the thousands. I wonder if it could almost be a gig job where depending on when people actually buy wine, but if they're buying in the daytime and most moms are working at the nighttime, maybe it's a side hustle. Yeah, that's true. I like that. So there's a lot of wine clubs out there. Everybody seems like they have a wine club. Obviously, you have a giant selection, but I am curious on what makes Wine.com's picked different or better for most people. So I think there's a whole bunch of reasons why we're different. And obviously, I think we're better. The first is that personal aspect. So the fact that there is a real human involved and they're picking distinct wines for you as a customer is really unique. I don't think there's actually any other club where every single customer gets something different that's different because it's tailored to them. The second part is related to the selection. So the fact that we have so many different wines means that you can continue to get new discoveries every single time. Other wine clubs out there have 50, 200 wines. That means that eventually you're just going to start cycling through the same thing, which some customers may be happy with. But for others who are looking to continuously like expand their palate, it's going to get boring after a while. Third is that we only sell real wine. I use air quotes with that because we don't make any wine. There's no private label wine here. We're not in that business. And for better or for worse, that is the business that most other wine clubs are in. But we have no skin in the game other than just we exist purely to help the customer find something that's going to delight them. It's not about pushing high margin products. It's not about pushing this thing that we made. It's just about, is this taste good to you? Yes or no? If so, then great. Let's get that to your door. Lastly, is just like the level of control and personalization that we allow. So you tell us what's the mix of reds and whites. You tell us the price point, the frequency. You can even just tell us like, I tried Mencia for the first time last week and I hated it. So let's make sure that we don't have anything like that going forward. I don't think other services have that level of input and feedback that we do. So I'm curious on the overlap between the picked wine club and stewardship. Is it essentially a sub part of stewardship in terms of you see there's a very strong overlap or is it actually two different demographics? They're definitely distinct, but they have some overlap. Generally speaking, our stewardship customers tend to be folks who are very comfortable navigating the world of wine on their own. They're comfortable self-serving and are delighted in our huge selection. The picked program is targeted more at customers who are a little bit less confident in shopping at such a large selection. They need a little bit more help. That said, there's obviously a lot of people who are confident, but also just want help discovering new things. And we absolutely want to help them do that. So there is a little bit of overlap, but they're broadly trying to target different groups. Got it. They're satisfying different motivations in terms of confidence level and in terms of wine can be a daunting thing for many people, especially given the volume of choices that you offer. Exactly. How big is the wine.com wine club today? Is there like a KPI, a goal that you have for the coming years? Yeah, it is definitely very small right now. We launched last year and it's early days. Every couple of weeks, we're making tweaks here and tweaks there. But in the grand scheme of things, I don't think there's any reason why Picked can't be as big as our regular wine.com business. You know, there's just as many of those consumers out there. So that's the BHAG, the big, hairy, audacious goal. So Picked is obviously getting more personalized for 
your consumer and personalization is a big trend for e-commerce companies to engage with their customers. Are there other ways that Wine.com is trying to create a more personalized experience? Personalization is, I think, the one thing that's really missing in the wine category today, especially given most shopping happens at brick and mortar stores, where it's just really hard to have a level of personalization unless it's your corner store, you know the guy, you've been shopping there for years, and he like, remembers your taste. But the chances of that happening are pretty small. So what we want to do is help make the largest wine store curated just for you. We know that you have unique tastes, you have unique needs, and it can be super overwhelming to see 17,000 wines. So our efforts around personalization are helping elevate recommendations that we already have, but help put them into context and help you more easily navigate to the places that you need to get to and elevate the things that are more relevant to you. So are you using the data that Wine.com has to create that personalization? Sort of like a Netflix, you watch this, therefore you'll like this? Exactly. If you went to our site right now, you would see some of that. So if you've shopped with us before, you'll see recommendations based off of prior purchases, helping you expand within a particular category that you've already tried some things in, or even introduce you to slightly different categories that are similar. But at the end of the day, yes, it's all based off of the signals that you've given us. Prior purchases, your ratings, things that you've added to cart. And for prospects too, I think we're thinking about how do we collect some of those signals that way we can help ensure that they have a personal experience as well. The user ratings, that's, I guess, how you would get feedback both for picked and just on wines in general. Is that common? Even though I'm a customer of wine.com, I don't think I've ever rated a wine or remembered to do so. For our stewardship members, they tend to be the folks that are going in and rating more frequently. But I think that part of this is helping them understand that providing that rating is going to provide you a better experience. And historically, I don't know that we've done a great job of explaining that to folks, helping them make that connection. Do you do any like surveys afterwards to try to encourage people to collect that data? Yeah, we do. A lot of that is over email, for instance. And so some folks don't open email. So, you know, maybe we should think about different ways to reach them and encourage that behavior. But a big part of it too, I think, is our app. So if you use our app, you're much more likely to rate and engage with products in that way. It's pretty cool, actually, if you have the app on your phone, if you're at a restaurant or even at a brick and mortar store, you can have all of this information at your fingertips in a way that I think that doesn't occur necessarily to most people. So we need to do a better job of helping educate people on those opportunities. I got to assume that just understanding like, hey, did you like that bottle of wine is different than leave a review of that bottle for other users to see. It's slightly different. One's public, one's just to help inform my buying behaviors. Yeah, or rate that wine so that way next time you can find one that you like even more. Yeah. And as soon as that becomes a conversation and not just an email or a data point, I think that becomes so much more powerful through the stewardship or even the picked thing, like having that connection with someone. And that's the holy grail of why someone goes to a local fine wine retailer because they can build a rapport over time and it becomes experiential as opposed to just a transaction. Right. Exactly. And so I think that's what we've really been piloting with picked is getting that feedback loop. So our picked users do provide ratings because it's very obvious of, hey, my personal psalm is going to see this, they're going to read that note, and they're going to know why I liked this, 
or why I didn't. And next time around, they're going to incorporate that into my picks. So can you fire your personal song and get a different one if you had a really bad recommendation? Good question. Right now, we don't have that capability. I actually have not heard any feedback yet of people saying my song is terrible, but that is something that we have thought about. I don't know if you guys are familiar with Stitch Fix, which is like a clothing subscription. With Stitch Fix, you can actually request a new stylist. So I think that is something that we will think about adding in the future. I just think like your Uber driver ratings, the, the Psalm can also rate the customer. <laughs> like it's like a mutual, yeah. like, I'm going to give you five stars. You're going to give me five stars. <laughs> <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> so as any online platform or any technology company for that matter, you have a lot of technology tools to drive different things across your business. I'm curious, outside of the things we've already talked about, what tools or technology is Wine.com using to enhance its customer experience? So we definitely use a lot of different technology from different services to help enable personalization. So recommendation engines and our email provider and our app. But I think the things that our customers really interacting with would definitely be our virtual tastings, which we launched last year. And we launched that in April 2020 because we had had this whole slate of in-person events that we were going to do. We were like, guess that's not happening. Let's pull them online. So delivering those through digital content was pretty cool. The next part is probably our app, which I was just mentioning. That, like I said, really provides you not only the store in your pocket, but also this encyclopedia of information, which is pretty cool. Yeah, I noticed the app seems a lot like the website. Your website actually has a lot of robust information, not only from reviews, but I can easily click to different vintages, which is super cool. Not a lot of websites do that. Yeah. And you have a lot of background, not only on either the producer, winemaker notes, but, you know, reviews, but then you cover in the, like the region, the country, and you kind of like back it up, which is very powerful. But how would you describe the user difference between those two? Would you say that the users on the app are a lot more responsive than the website? Like the website where people are going there just to make a transaction and the app is kind of like engaging more? That's a good question. I think I would maybe categorize our app users as like the hardcore users. If you're shopping for wine as much as I do, then you need to have your wine.com app at your fingertips at all times so you can just sort of make that purchase and go. But there are a lot of people who still prefer to shop on their desktop and that's totally fine. But I think the app does help encourage more ratings as a behavior because we have a feature where you can scan the label and pull up the product. That whole UX really helps elevate the star aspect of like, oh yeah, okay, I should rate that right now because it's right there in your face in a positive way. Highlighted or featured. (laughs) A lot of digitally native brands are starting to invest in brick and mortar, Amazon even with Whole Foods and their Amazon checkout thing and Warby Parker and others. What do you think are the advantages or trade-offs for this for wine e-commerce? I don't think wine.com will ever go the way of brick and mortar for two reasons. The first is the second that you have brick and mortar stores, your assortment is hugely limited. You can no longer offer 17,000 wines. (laughs) That would be football fields of aisles. I think people would have to wear special sneakers to walk around and figure out all the things that they wanted to purchase. The second piece is a lack of personalization. I think that the data that shopping online provides allows a different level of personalization, which enables like a really different level of customer experience that I just don't think you can ever replicate in the store. 
And if that's the strategy that we're moving in, it feels like brick and mortar is the polar opposite. You see that with some of the retail trends, people are going to the store to look at something, maybe find a size if they're looking at clothing, for example, and then purchasing it online, having it shipped to their house. It's like, oh, no, you can just ship it to me. It's just changing the whole concept of shopping and e-commerce and retail brick and mortar. It's It's really fluid at the moment. Exactly. And that concept of like needing to go and touch it or feel it and like get a sense of it, actually going and looking at the bottle is probably going to give you less information (laughs) than if you were to go online and read about it. So I feel like our category is strangely convoluted or the inverse of what other categories get out of brick and mortar. Not too many people need to touch and feel the bottle. Yeah. (laughs) So what are you most excited about in the wine industry in the coming year or so? I personally am just really excited about this continued growth. As I said at the beginning, so many more people are starting to shop online for the first time. And I think we're just going to continue to see that accelerate into the future. The other piece really is as we add personalization to our site experience, I think we're going to be able to really delight customers in a new way where we can help recognize that every single customer is on their own personal wine journey. And we can help them just take that next step on their own individual path. Not every two customers is going to experience wine the same way, but we can meet every single customer where they are in a way that I don't think anybody else can. So I'm really, really excited to help bring that to life this year. Well, we want to thank you for joining us and being so transparent with everything at wine.com. We greatly appreciate all these insights. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, cheers. cheers.